It is an honor to be here today and share with you. Um, we're going to continue in the series on Philippians, um, this whole idea of citizenship, uh, being citizens of another place but having to live here. Uh, if you will, let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would invade this time, this space, our hearts. Don't allow us to do what we've, many of us have done time and time again, which is go to church, but not actually live in a way that would say that we are the church. Don't allow us, God, to go through the religious ritual of being in a church building in the midst of believers, but not be changed by the God who ordained it all to come together. I pray, God, if somebody's in here and they've never received you, that their hearts would be pricked and they'd be pulled closer to you today. Uh, my, my, my heart, God, is that you would say something through this message that's bigger, grander, more important than Cross Point Church, than Damian Boyd, than what's going on here today. But God, speak of something that's above, that's beyond. It's better. I hide so far behind the cross, God, that people would hardly remember who spoke today, but they would know that God spoke. Do something great in these lives and in my own heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been talking through this whole idea um, we, meaning this is my first time joining it, so pretty much you. Um, you've been talking through the whole idea of being a citizen, um, and I'm joining the conversation late, acting like I know everything. But I'm a preacher, that's my job, deal with it. All right, this whole idea of being a citizen means that we are people here, but our citizenship and our rights and everything we're supposed to have is somewhere else. Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, and he's talking to the church while in chains. He's in a first century jail. Now, I'm not going to tell you all my story, but I've been in a 20th century jail. You don't need to know why, just yet. But you know, those jails are cushy and nice compared to the first century jail. I don't want a whole bunch that the first century had. Maybe their faith. It's about it. I don't know if you know, they were tough times. It was not nice. They didn't have air conditioning. Come on. Not as much fun as you would anticipate. People always say, I wish I would have been around with Jesus, whatever, you're a wuss. You know, one, you got to walk everywhere, and I have flat feet, and it's just not cool. I'm having a hard time wearing chucks, let alone just some strappy sandals. But can you imagine being in a first century jail? And he's writing to the, the church and encouraging them while being chained up. And he's telling them and encouraging them that, look, no matter what happens in this world, 
This is not your home. You come from someplace else. You have an origin of another place, and that origin should be imported into where you are. Don't allow what's happening there to affect you like what's happening there. Does that make sense? He's building a case. You belong there. Live like you belong there here. It's almost like Sesame Street Grover. Near? Far! Anybody remember that? So kids, you don't know that. You know Elmo. Elmo wasn't around when we were younger. He's new. But Grover was the man. And you know the difference between near and far. And that's what Paul is trying to get. Live near based on the far that God has for you. And as he's, he's painting this picture, I think about the, what we do. I, I lead a church in downtown Atlanta in the statistically worst part of the city of Atlanta. There's 10,000 uh, college students, most of them African-American, and all around that is the poorest of the poor. High sex, crime, drugs, sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, murder, all around these college campuses. And we challenge these students to go and make a difference in the community around them. Go be the difference. Change the atmosphere. Don't come and exist in these campuses and not go there and make a difference. I've been working with college students for years, uh, almost 20 years. Sorry. Just realized I'm old. Um, and now that I have a beard, I can't hide my grays as much. It's almost depressing. Give it up for old people. Yeah. I'm one of you, I guess. Um, so, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm sorry. 20 years just melted in my heart and it just ruined everything. I almost forgot where I was going. All right, uh, yeah, so 20 years, working with college students, that's where I was going. And I, I've written a book for college students and um, worked with them for years, and it, I've paid attention to something. You know, statistics say that 70 to 80% of good, kind, nice, sweet youth group kids coming from amazing churches, by the time they graduate from college, they would have a degree, but they won't have Jesus. They will have a degree, but they will no longer identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Studies have shown this. I've done the research consistently. You know why that happens? It's because I've, 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 the students that go into college trying to hold on to their faith. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to be bad. I want to be good. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to mess up. Guess what they do right away? They mess up. Because their whole focus is on not messing up. So they wind up messing up. But the, the believers that go in and know that their faith is used and should be used to make a difference in the world, that they're not just lowly little Christian kids, but they're ones that are supposed to change the world. The ones that are supposed to be on offense, not defense, 
They're the ones that have a tendency to make it through. And not only make it through, make it through and do something great while they're there. You get the difference between an offensive mindset and a defensive mindset? That is in essence what Paul is saying. Stop playing defense. Stop allowing the world, the culture, the things that are around you to determine who you are, what you do, how you function, and let the reality of you're a citizen somewhere else determine how you live and function in that world and change the world to look like the world you're going to go too soon. Now, you were told earlier, you may not have heard it, I'm a black preacher, you got to talk back to me. Amen. All right. That's good. If I'm too close, ouch. But Paul is saying, don't just allow this world to dictate to you who you are, what you do, how you function. No, you go and change the atmosphere there. Why? Because you don't belong there anyway. You're the agent of change. You're the Kool-Aid in the water. Does that make sense? Doesn't even take a lot. A little bit goes a long way. You change the environment instead of the other way around. But Paul is talking to people. Many of them are part of the Christian diaspora that are spread apart and gone because of persecution is breaking out on the church. And Paul is in chains saying, look, change the atmosphere of where you are. Don't allow the atmosphere to change you. Be agents of God because your citizenship is somewhere else. And when you do that and you live like that, everybody around you gets to partake of the atmosphere of heaven because you carry that atmosphere on the inside. So let's look at the scripture, um, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Let's look at the scripture to see how Paul lays this out. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all of understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these. And the God of peace will be with you. We have three key lessons that we're going to go through today. Three keys that will give us insight into what Paul is teaching the church. And he starts this whole idea with Judea and Syntyche and this disagreement. Now, please understand me. If Judea and Syntyche, if they're fighting so intensely that Paul hears it in prison... This is a real issue. 
this isn't why you cut your hair like that. Oh, why you wear that shirt? I don't like your skirt. I don't like your kids. I mean, just it's like, this is a real battle. So bad that Paul hears about it in prison. Now, if I'm in prison and somebody's telling me about an argument, I think I got some other issues I need to focus on right now. So it's a big issue. Huge. And what does it teach us? It teaches us the first thing. Unity is a premium in God's kingdom. Unity is a premium in God's kingdom. You see, Paul knew that Jesus himself taught out of John 13. It's not going to be in your, on your screens. You've got to look at it later, write it down. John 13, 35 says, By this Jesus taught, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What Jesus taught us is, by the love, the way we treat one another, how lovingly I engage with you. will speak to others that don't know him. It will speak to them about him. How I treat you demonstrates to others who don't belong to Jesus that I actually belong to Jesus. If we can't get along, then them watching us don't believe that we believe what we believe about him. I'm trying to say it as many ways as I can. If you don't like the person sitting next to you, then other people won't even believe that you're a Christian. Unity is a premium in God's kingdom. And so often, Christians, we get sidetracked by petty issues, race, socioeconomic status, political leanings. None of that stuff exists there. But we let it divide us here. You know, when we get to heaven, those differences will make no difference. And we will all look a whole lot more like Jesus than we do right now. So we have to bring that atmosphere here. But the things that we let divide us seem so important now. But there they won't matter. Then we shouldn't have let it divide us here. Some years ago, I went to um, Rwanda about 10 years ago. I went to Rwanda. It was 10 years after the genocide. And I don't know if you know about the Rwandan genocide. About a million people died in about a month. The U.S. and every other country turned their back on them. Said if they want to kill themselves, let them. It's Africa. It's way over there. Who cares? I think God cares. So we went to be a part of some healing there, the largest gathering they had ever had since the genocide. And I'm telling you, this genocide was ugly. We were in a church where people ran for safety because they figured they'd be safe in the church. And I'm sorry if this is a little graphic for your young ones, but it actually happened. They were two-year-old and less being grabbed by the feet and swung against the wall. Why? Because bullets were expensive. I've held in my hand a skull that belonged to a baby, and you can see a hack mark in it. 
from a machete. So we're talking about some ugly stuff here. The worst humanity can dish up was happening. But it was amazing as we were spending time with these Rwandans, they were so contrite and so beat up and so messed up that they could themselves be that ugly that we saw forgiveness at a level we had never experienced. Great pain was experienced, but the forgiveness scene was almost bigger than the pain that they experienced. It was awesome. And we would hear stories, and one story that broke me in the best of ways was this guy had killed everybody. I think it was a neighbor. It killed everybody in the house, and maybe one or two people got away. And he was so broken that he could kill all those people in the house that after the genocide, he came back and he started working on the house to fix it up, to make it better. And they're like, what are you doing here? We know you. We know what you did. We know what you did, but he was so broken over what he had done that he had to do something for them. He couldn't just sit idly by. He had to do something to make a difference. And over time, he had become so woven into the family that they asked him to move in. And he became like family to them. That's real forgiveness at a level we don't understand. Somebody quipped um, from the trip, quipped and said, you know, it's funny, you know, they know real forgiveness and people will leave a church because they weren't invited to a barbecue. <laughs> we can't get along because I believe you should put the envelopes in, in the front of the seat and you believe you should put it on the seat and we can't get along and I ought to go to another church and I don't even like you. You see how we've, let, we've allowed the culture and the world here to determine how we interact with one another, but the reality is we should act like we are there and there are people that don't know Jesus, that know real forgiveness, and we can't forgive one another, and we're supposed to be representing him to a world? Are you freaking kidding me? Does he not deserve better than that from us? Who say we represent him? Now, if you're not a believer in here, you're probably thinking, they don't know I'm not a believer, but amen. They're going to be ugly to somebody else who can't. Christians love being different than other Christians. We hold conversations like, well, I know you may have seen some Christians, but I'm not like them. We're so busy trying to be different than other people who carry the same name. Have we forgotten that the same cross that paid the penalty for our sin paid for theirs too? So I have no desire to be different than any other Christian. I just want to follow God and be more like him personally. But I have no desire to lob bombs at somebody else because they're different than me. Why? Because grace came for you just like it came for me. I'm no better than anybody else. I just want to keep walking like them. I see pastors do this. You see a church and a pastor and there'll be sin or something happen and everybody immediately starts to beat up. And I'm like, no, he's still a brother in Christ. Somebody love him. Why? Because when we do that, it speaks of God and where we're going. Unity is a premium in God's kingdom. 
And if we can't get along, how are people even going to believe that we believe what we say we believe? You don't got to say amen. I don't care. It's true. It's true. It's hard. Okay, let me help you. Sometimes Christians suck. Let's just settle that. Sometimes we just suck. But guess what? I'm supposed to love you in spite of you. Because he loved me in spite of me. And when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. When you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And so I'm no better than you. We all got to come to the same cross, baby. And find forgiveness and healing and hope. And if we can love one another in the midst of the struggle, then it communicates who we really belong to. And it says that we are citizens of there. And we bring that atmosphere here. Amen? Second, worship changes us in the toughest of situations, is what Paul is teaching. Worship changes us in the toughest of situations. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He says it twice, rejoice. Paul is in chains telling us to rejoice. Now, listen to me. When we rejoice, that word in Greek is, is, is chiaro. It, it, it means be, to be glad. And if we're being told to be glad, then that means that there's a possibility that we could actually be glad. Choose to rejoice. Are you a pessimist? Are you like Eeyore? Anybody old Winnie the Pooh fans? Eeyore was always depressed about something. I lost my tail. Come on now. And now make no mistake about it. Sometimes I understand there's a clinical depression, but I'm just talking about this whole idea that there's hope and there's life and there's joy. Hope leads us not ashamed. Hope is a powerful thing. Do you hope in God? As David wrote, why are you so downcast within me? So hope in God. Do you hope? Do you believe that there's a better day? Or do you just let your circumstances and your situations determine how you think and feel? All right, I'm going to step on your toes since you're so vocal. Ladies, that time of the month gives you no excuse to be bad to people. I don't care that you don't like it. It's true. You're a Christian in spite of the time of month. So stop being evil. Brothers, if things didn't go your way and she didn't cook what you wanted her to cook, does not give you a right to be moody. We have to be something better than here. Everybody does that. We should be different because we're from there. 
Nobody should have to get us worked up to worship. I worship because he saved me. He rescued me. The God of the universe knows me. He came for me when I didn't even think about him. And he saw me when everybody else rejected me. And he says, I will love you because I see you and I see value and worth in you. And every th- even though people have rejected you, I see you. I don't deserve that. I can't earn that. So I worship. I will rejoice. Why? Because I have no reason to rejoice at other points in my life. But now I have him, and in spite of what's going on around me, I can rejoice. He said, let your reasonableness be known by everybody. And be anxious for nothing. For nothing. Sometimes... We let worry ruin us. Now, what does worry do for you to help you? Not a blasted thing. Worry or no worry, the situation is going to be what it is. It is what it is to it ultimately becomes what it will be whether you worry about it or not, but all worry's doing is wearing you out and wearing you down and getting you all stressed out and making you nasty and making you evil and getting you all concerned and you're freaking out as if God is not in control. I was talking to a young lady that I've discipled and I was like, at what point has God lost control of your life? All of a sudden, because you're going through a hard time, God's not God? Or is he who he always said he was, and is he still that? Is he still going to keep you and sustain you and hold on to you? I think we've believed a message that is incorrect. That is, everything in life is going to be awesome. Because I'm a Jesus follower. That is a lie. You know how I know it? Because the same Jesus that came from heaven and was awesome, went to a cross, which means sometimes life sucks. And ain't nothing you can do about it. But what Paul is saying is don't let this life determine your outlook on it. See, we freak out because things get hard. We get all worried and we get all in this world and get concerned with the cares and the troubles and the issues in this world and we forget that we have something better coming. And this is Paul from prison telling us this. Paul was masterful at turning his prison cell into a pulpit and into a prayer service. Prison didn't change who he was. He lived out who he was in the midst of the struggle. I, uh, uh, when we went to start our church, when we went to start our church, I, um, my wife lost her job because we were starting a church. Some of you will process and think through that. She lost her job because we were starting a church. We lost our health insurance. We have a son, he'll be 10 his next birthday, 
who has cerebral palsy. Um, he's completely dependent upon us. Uh, he's in a wheelchair, and, you know, we, 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 we take care of him. We absolutely love him. He's, he's a delight. We lost our health insurance. Okay. Because there wasn't a large amount of income coming in, we were up for foreclosure on the house we were living in that we had already started getting renovated for him. All right. And you want us to go play in a church in the midst of college students in the urban poor. Okay. And I never forget at that low moment, well, not to mention, like, in the process of starting the church, my son has a really bad seizure. My mom has pulmonary embolism where blood clots get to both of her lungs, and my sister's diagnosed with breast cancer. All in the same season. Okay. At our lowest point, we were like negative 150 or $180 in the bank. We had no gas. We had no food. And I'm going to go do something as ridiculous as plant a church in the midst of the urban poor and college students. And my wife just kind of looked at me like, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. God's going to take care of it. That's all I know. You know what I've learned? Either you trust God or you don't. Forget all the jaw jacking and talking about the faith that you think you have. When the chips are down and your back's against the wall, either you trust God or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no, oh, I think. When God is all you have, then I need him to show up and do something that I can't do. And in that moment of God's going to take care of us coming out of my mouth, I was in awe because I had no idea I had faith like that. So prone to freak out, so prone to be concerned, but all I knew in that moment is if God brought us here, he'll keep us through it. If we lose my mom, if we lose our son, if we lose our house, all I know is God brought us here and now he's responsible to get us through it. Be anxious for nothing, but know that God has it. People look at my family all the time and they wonder, how do you do the work you do in a community you do it in and deal with your son and all of his complex needs? Because I trust God and if he gave me the son, then he can bring us through this situation. If he gave him to me, then he'll make a way with him in the midst of this. See, you begin to understand it's not what you go through, it's who with you, it's who's with you in the midst of what you go through. It's not the circumstance or situation that should determine things. It's the God that you're with, that's in heaven, that's there. It's that God. It's him. See, worship's a premium because worship's going on nonstop in heaven. They're loving on God. They're getting glimpses of him. They're seeing him. They're falling down. They're crying out. Why? Because he is so much more beautiful than everything in this world. 
And when we see him and we get a glimpse that he's so much more beautiful than everything else in this world, the cares of this world just fade away. Why? Because that's where my citizenship is. Where he is central and I'm not. But we can let our issues and our drama and our stress and everything else scream louder than worshiping the God who was and is and is still to come. And what Paul is saying is rejoice and don't get wrapped up in the issues of this world. But just pray about them and know that God is will do it and he can do it. See, it is our responsibility to trust him. It's his responsibility to do what only he can do. Worship changes us and the environment on the inside. But so often we're, we allow what's happening around us to dictate what's should be happening on the inside. But if we're going to change the atmosphere here, we have to import the atmosphere there and let the atmosphere in here look like the atmosphere there so that we can change the atmosphere here. Did you catch that? Because I can't repeat it. (laughs) Are you getting what we're talking about? Don't let this world bully you. You have a citizenship somewhere else. And when you begin to lock in on that, everything around you changes. Yes, cancer comes. Spouses don't always get along. Kids rebel. But when you got your eyes set on the place you're going, it shifts you and how you function. And how you see things. And that leads us to our next point. When we change how we think, we change how we live. When we change how we think, we change how we live. This is what's in our control. Paul said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence if there's anything worth praise, think, on, think about these things. When we change how we think, we change how we live. The biggest battleground many of us have is our own minds. Worship changes things on the inside of us, but we have to choose to change our own mind. Do you understand that even spiritual warfare, most of spiritual warfare, a good percentage of it is Dealing in our own minds. I'm not saying there's not a real devil, not real demons, not real principalities and powers in the air, but often we can't even get to them because we can't get over ourselves. You don't believe it? Look at what 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. They come from the other world. The place where we should have our citizenship. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretensions that set itself up against the knowledge of God. And we, say we, take captives every thought 
to make it obedient to Christ. This is not something God is trying to do for you. This is something you got to do yourself. You got to change your own mind. If you change how you see your spouse, you change your marriage. If you change how you see your children, you change your relationship. If you change how you see your job, you go in there and instead of just getting a paycheck, you go in and be an emissary for the kingdom where you have your citizenship. You got to change your mind. You can shift things just by changing the way you think. But if we come into this, woe is me, life is beating me up, everything sucks, it's horrible, oh, I'm crying, I'm whining, Then you don't speak in your life of the citizenship which you have in heaven. But it starts here. The battleground is in your mind. If you shift the way you see yourself, you might just believe you can accomplish something great. Don't get me started. Do you understand that on the cross, Jesus determined your value and your worth? You are a priceless treasure of a holy God because on the cross, he said, my purity, my holiness, my worthiness, is worth laying down for you. He paid a price that was ridiculous for you. And since he paid that price, that is what you are worth. So regardless of what people tell you you're worth, your worth is infinite and boundless. Because almighty God paid a price for you. Because he saw value in you. So you can't see yourself the way other people see you. You can't see yourself and determine who you are by your friends and other people's perspectives. You're, the way you see yourself is based on how God sees you in heaven. And when he saw you, he saw a priceless treasure. He saw something worthwhile. He saw something of value. So now he ascribes that value to you forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is saying is don't let this world determine who you are. Don't let this world tell you who you are. Know who you are based on what he says about you. And live like it. Okay, I need to say that again. Live like it. Don't give yourself excuses for why you don't live up to what God has. Live like it. Look at the big idea. When we combine the unity of the saints, the confidence that comes through worship and right living, uh, with right living and right thinking, we bring the atmosphere of heaven here. You see, there's no reason why we should hold on to this world so tightly because Jesus is better. Do you understand that in heaven he literally is giving light? He is the treasure of heaven. He's better than everything in this world. And we can't hold so tightly to the things in this world that will perish and will have no value, but hold on to the things there that are infinitely valuable. The message today is not let your life go because it's bad. It's hold on to Jesus because he's better. God doesn't come in and say, okay, choose Jesus or choose something else because you know you got many options. It's no, there's no comparison to what's there. Right. Grab
grab him and don't let him go. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the one that will heal you. He is the one that will deliver you. He is the one that will free you. He is the one when we get to heaven, we will forever give praise and worship and glory to. Why? Because he's better. I'm not trying to tell you, hey, this world is okay. But No, he's way better. There's no comparison. And when we start to believe that, the trivial things of this world fade away. And we start to live like citizens of a better place. because he's better than everything in this world. And I believe God wants his people to believe it and live like it. It's in Christ alone. It's in him. We live, move, and have our being. We are citizens of a better place. And we have a better God who wants us to live like it. When we do that, we import the atmosphere of heaven where we're citizens to earth.